Everybody say back to school. Oh yeah, we're going back to school today. James is our professor. The book of James is our curriculum. We're going to pick it up where we left off last week, James chapter 4. Open your Bible, if you would. I also want to say, just echo what Lance said, guys. I'm so honored, so thankful to be your pastor and the way that you serve our city and bless our city through your generosity. Hundreds of you served yesterday in the hot sun. I saw a bunch of sweaty people with sweat and cotton candy all over them. It was awesome suffering for Jesus, yeah? I mean, seriously, and uh, I'm telling you, you bless so many people. Understand, when we talk about reaching a city for God, whether it's your neighbors personally or somebody clear across town, so much of the law of the harvest is just tilling the soil. You can scatter a lot of seed, but if you never till the soil, you won't get the harvest. So these types of things we do, it's just about the soil being turned of the seedbed of the hearts of people in our city. As we scatter the seed of the gospel, lives are being changed by Jesus, and you make it happen, Christ in you. So I just want to tell you how thankful I am for each of you. The book of James is where we are. It was 1987 B.C. Seriously. 1987 B.C., that stands for Before Christa. And I'm about to go off to Lawrence, Kansas to play football. Two days are about to begin. And so my friends had a going away party for me. Now, my best friend at the time that summer was a kid named Rob Lehmer. There he is. And we were best friends my senior year of high school. And uh, he kind of had the fun place to gather. And his mom was a kind of a really fun mom, you know what I'm saying? And so all my friends would gather over there. Now they're having this going away party for me. Yes, that's really me, I promise. <laughs> it was 30 years ago, Okay. Don't laugh too hard. Someday you'll have 30 years on you too. And I'm just telling you, it ain't looking good. Just saying. Okay, so 30 years ago, things were, and this, Rob was my, my best friend at the time, and we had this going away party, and they were throwing for me. I'm about to go off to two days, and uh, camp's about to begin. So a few days before that, we all gathered at his house, and his mom is just snapping pictures the whole time. And this, these were the days before cell phones with cameras. Like you had to plan ahead of time, right? And uh, so she was just taking pictures the whole time, and she got these matching, matching T-shirts that said party club on it. So, you know, this is the party club, and, you know, all the friends are there, and she's snapping pictures, and she takes this picture of me and Rob, and, and then I hear the phone ring. And this picture literally is me watching Rob talk on the phone. I didn't know she was taking it. It's like candid. And I realized, then, what, what, what was I thinking at the time? I'm watching Rob talk on the phone, and if I look like I'm a little bit concerned, I'm trying to think, what am I going to do? You see, I have gone to this party with a girl, and I really kind of like this girl. Now remember, this was 1987 B.C. I had pursued Krista our entire senior year, but I was in the friend zone the entire year. I didn't want to be in the friend zone, but I was in the friend zone. Like the worst possible place to be if you're a guy is in the friend zone. I invited her to go to prom with me. She turned me down. She invited me to dance with her at prom. I turned her down. So it was that kind of thing, right? So I'm still in BC. This is before Krista. I met this girl this summer, and I really, really kind of liked her, and I brought her to this party. Then I hear the phone ring, and I'm looking at Rob, and I know exactly what I'm thinking because I realize he's talking to Krista. And she's asking for directions to the house. I didn't know she was coming to this party, but she's coming to the party. She is on the way to this party. And this girl I have brought is in the basement where the party is, and we're up in the kitchen. So right here, I'm thinking to myself, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? 
what am I going to do? <laughs> I mean, there's a girl I really like in the basement, but the girl I really, really like is on the way. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? What am I going to do? Deer in the headlights. Hmm. Yeah. What was the problem? I'll tell you what the problem was. I had a divided heart. Uh, and, and I had to make a decision. I realized I'm going to have to make a decision. I have a divided heart. Girl I like is in the basement. The girl I really, really like is on the way over. So what did I do? I'll tell you what I did. I hardly made it down to the basement the rest of the entire night. I spent the entire rest of the night in the kitchen with Krista. She didn't want me to show you this picture, by the way. Hey, I'm just saying, if you were a girl that grew up in the 80s, you would have had frizzy hair too, okay? So don't laugh too loud. There's just some things that have never come back around. They say everything comes back around. That never did, for whatever reason. And so lots of things have changed in 30 years. I have no hair. She no longer has frizzy hair. And a few nights later, the night before I'm leaving for Lawrence, she shows up on my front lawn to say goodbye. I go out to meet her on my front lawn. I'm telling you guys, it was not the 4th of July, but there were fireworks in the sky. And the rest is history. I no longer had a divided heart. I'd made my decision. You say, Phil, why are you telling us this story? I'll tell you why. Because for some of you, honestly, the number one problem you have in your relationship with Jesus is you have a divided heart. Your heart is divided. When Jesus wants all of your heart, you've divided your heart. You have too many lovers in your life. The reality is there's one lover of your soul, but you keep giving it over and over again to another. You choose sin over him. You see, you have a divided heart. You've come to that moment in your life, kind of like I did. You need to redefine the relationship, RDR. You need to redefine where we're going with this thing because Jesus is tired of just dating. He wants a commitment. He wants a ring on your finger, a ring in your heart. And you see, that is what James is talking about. As he begins to wind down this letter, as we go back to the book of James for our learning and for our curriculum, James 4 and verse 1, this is where he's taking us this morning. You ready for this? Say yes. All right, here we go. He says this, where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have, you murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your own pleasures. Now look at what he says, adulterers and adulteresses. Uh, put it in our contemporary terms, this is not seeker sensitive preaching. Like he's not worried about offending. I mean, he just unloads right here, you adulterers and adulteresses. He's calling you and me adulterers and adulteresses, the readers of his letter. Now look at what he says. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, why is it that James addresses his audience as adulterers and adulteresses? Listen very carefully. James refers to us in this way because our relationship with Christ is in view of a marriage. And so there's lots of different ways the New Testament illustrates our relationship with Jesus. We are children of God, as you know. We're to be soldiers of the Lord. That's what Paul called us. But here we learn that we are the bride of Christ, and he is our bridegroom. 
And so to really understand what James is talking about, we got to remember who wrote this letter, to whom now he is writing it to, and so much of the time we miss exactly what the Bible says because we forget it is entirely a Jewish book written by Jewish authors to Jewish people about a Jewish Messiah, yet we try to interpret it through the lens of a European mindset, a wrong theological system of Western Europe, and we miss completely what's going on here. So remember, James 1 and verse 1, he addresses this letter to the 12 tribes that are scattered abroad. We need to get in the mindset of those early Jewish readers that would have received this letter. And if indeed you do, you know right away what they're thinking because they understand that there's a Jewish wedding. It's a little bit unlike our wedding. And for the Jews, there were three stages in this Jewish wedding. The first stage of a Jewish wedding was what was called the betrothal stage. And then the second stage was what was called the presentation stage. And then the third stage of a Jewish wedding was the consummation mason stage. And now you understand exactly what's going on when it says in Revelation 19 verse 7, let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. We've spent the last year going verse by verse, line by line through the book of Revelation. That's something we call the well because we take a deep dive into the word of God, 430 at the core, open Q&A to follow. If you can't go live, you can get it online. Now watch this. The very climax of the book of Revelation is the very climax of God's plan that he's had for man from the very beginning. The climax is his establishing a kingdom that will be without end. And there's something right here as God brings about that plan for man, establishing that kingdom. It's called the marriage supper of the lamb, where the church, the bride of Christ, is now married and presented to the bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now you know why he calls us adulterers and adulteresses, because the New Testament describes the church as the betrothed bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the problem for some of us is we have too many lovers in our life. Every time we choose sin over him, and you can begin to see why now the Apostle Paul would write these words in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 2, for I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. You see, we're in the betrothal stage of this wedding to our Jewish bridegroom. What was the Jewish betrothal? It's what we would call the engagement period. Unlike our engagement, though, a Jewish betrothal was legally binding. You were legally married the moment you were betrothed, you simply did not yet take your vows or consummate the marriage. Now, what would happen is that Jewish bridegroom would propose to that young Jewish maiden, right? And what would happen is he would make a proposal and he would make a written vow called a ketubah. In that written vow, he would write his vows and read his vows to her, in essence saying, if you agree to marry me, I promise to do this and this and this and this. And then watch this. If she received that proposal and agreed to marry him, he would hand her a glass of wine, and if she would take that cup and drink from that glass of wine, in essence, what she was saying is, I do to you. And that was how they would make that betrothal official. Now, when we take that cup of wine today, that fruit of the vine, that ought to have now more meaning to you because it's in view of a Jewish bridegroom and a Jewish wedding who has made certain vows to you. For example, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, what would happen next? He would disappear for weeks or months or even up to a year. 
He would completely go away. And what he was doing for up to a year is he would go back to his father's house where he was building a room onto his father's house. It was a bridal chamber, a marriage chamber. And now you know why. On the night before Jesus' death, he said in John 14, as a Jewish bridegroom, he said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms, as in bridal chambers, many mansions, and I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. You see, he's gone to his father's house where he is preparing a room for you. And one day he has promised to come again. That was the presentation stage. You see, out of months or even up to a year, he haven't had any contact with each other. They have not talked to each other. They have not seen each other. And then completely unannounced, he would reappear with an entourage of his brothers, his boys, his friends. And with great pomp and ceremony, There would be the presentation stage where all of a sudden he carries her back to his father's house. And now you can see what's going to happen at the rapture of the church. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, it says, One day the Jewish bridegroom is going to descend from heaven with a shout, with a voice of the archangel, the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first, and we which are alive and remain shall be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall be forevermore with the Lord." He's going to carry us back to the Father's house to be with him forevermore. We are in this betrothal stage. We're currently the betrothed bride of Christ. Now watch this. For a whole year, she was keeping herself pure. She was making herself ready to see her bridegroom when he reappeared. You know what that means? She was keeping her chastity. She was keeping her sexual purity. She was keeping herself holy for her husband. And that's why Paul would write, I have betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. He's coming for a chaste virgin bride, the chaste virgin bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I'm jealous over you with a godly jealousy in the very same way that if you saw your spouse giving affection to another lover, you would be jealous over them, wouldn't you? And this is what he's now communicating to me and you. Listen, this is one of the most proud days of my life. There I am. I would marry that girl four years later, October the 5th, 1991. And we're leaving the church right now on the way to the honeymoon. And somebody says, well, why don't you pick her up? And we're about to walk that gauntlet. Now, we don't use rice anymore. We use bubbles today. We're a lot gentler. Because I don't know if you realize this, I'm about to walk down this gauntlet of friends and family. And my brother is there. And he's got a handful of rice. And from point blank range, he's going to drill me. Okay? Uh, Here I am. I have picked her up, and I'm about to carry her off to the honeymoon. And that's exactly the imagery you see of the Lord Jesus Christ at the rapture of the church. He's going to pick up his bride and whisk her away to the honeymoon, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, I want you to understand, this is the context then that James writes, James 4 and verse 5. Or do you think that the Scripture says in vain, the Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? 
Do you see now why the Apostle Paul would write in 2 Corinthians eleven two that I'm jealous over you with a godly jealousy? Jesus is jealous over his bride. He is jealous over you, not jealous of you, but he's jealous for you. In other words, he doesn't want you to give away your heart to another lover. And every time we choose sin over him, that's called spiritual infidelity. That's called spiritual adultery. Now you know why James says you adulterers and adulteresses. Do you understand that our sin hurts the heart of Jesus? In the very same way that if your spouse was giving themselves away to another lover, their sin would hurt you too. There's a godly jealousy. He's not jealous of you. He's jealous for you. He wants your chastity, your spiritual integrity. He wants your heart completely and exclusively. He wants your loyalty, your allegiance. You see, for God, love is spelled allegiance. Love is spelled loyalty. And in the end, that's what love is for any of us. It's loyalty, someone who's loyal to me. And this is what he's teaching this morning. It's why he says we are guilty so much of the time of spiritual infidelity. Now, I realize this is hard to fathom. It's hard to imagine. But think about how you would feel this morning. Uh, Phyllis, would you mind handing me your purse, if you don't mind, please? Could I have your purse? So I really appreciate that, Phyllis. Well, that's got some weight in it. Must have some important stuff in there, right? Now, I appreciate you sharing this purse with me. It's not my purse, but if you don't mind, I'm going to give it to Lynn right here. Lynn, would you take this purse? I'm going to give you this purse today. You can keep that. Hang on to it. There's probably some really valuable stuff in it. Go ahead and you can sit down. That's your purse now. I'm sure she doesn't mind giving that away. I'm sure she doesn't mind that I gave that away. Phyllis, how, how does that feel right now? Somebody else has your purse. They have possession of what belongs to you. You feel violated. You should. Why? Because that's not mine to give away. That wasn't mine to give to him. That belongs to you. You're you're kind of jealous over it. Like you, you kind of want it back, don't you? Lynn, would you give that purse back right now before we get a rumble on the platform? All right. I don't want to have to break up Lynn and... Phyllis, okay, good. It's back in the right hands. Here's the point. That purse didn't belong to me. I had no right to give that to another. You understand that's a picture of your heart? Your heart does not belong to another. It's not yours to give away to another lover. And that's the problem so much of the time. Spiritual infidelity, we're repeater cheaters. Uh, spiritual adulterers, we give our hearts away to another, even though it doesn't belong to us. It wouldn't be any different today than, it, it, I'm just telling you up front, all right? I'm just, I'm just saying, some of us think, well, as long as I don't go deep into sin and commit the really big sins, Jesus and me, we're okay. Like, I can just flirt with sin as long as I don't actually sleep with sin and just hold hands with sin. I'll just tell you right now, One of you sweet ladies walks up to me today, takes my hand and holds my hand. My wife ain't gonna be okay. (laughs) In fact, I will promise you, you guys think Krista, she's just a sweet, gentle, kind soul. Oh no. (laughs) Oh no. You don't know her like I know her. 
sweet, gentle, kind Krista sees me holding hands with another woman walking down the hall, there's going to be two dead bodies by the day's end. I promise you, me and you, we're dead. All right? Because mama is coming unglued. She's not okay. It's not about, well, if I don't sleep with them, it's not a big deal. No, just holding a hand with them. That affection belongs to another. You see, Jesus is jealous over you. Your heart belongs to him, not another lover. And the problem for some of us, honestly, is we have too many lovers in our life instead of giving a heart exclusively to the one true lover of our soul. You see, idols, idolatry, we all have idols in our life and sometimes perpetually. Now, I realize a lot of us think idols where those are totem poles or little graven carved images. Oh, no, not in our sophisticated society. An idol is simply something you love more than you love God. God is something you serve more than you serve God. It's something you sacrifice more than you sacrifice for God. That's an idol. It's an object of worship. And that idolatry is spiritual infidelity in all of our lives. And I'm trying to tell you, it doesn't matter if you go deep into sin. Like if there's a guy that stands on my front porch today, he, he knocks on my door and I open the door and he's got a bouquet of flowers and he says, Phil, I would like to take your wife on a date today, and I don't worry, because we're not going to get in bed together, I promise. We're not going to actually have sex. I'm, I prom- we're not going to go all the way, but I just want to take her on a date and show her a good time, and we're probably going to hold hands together, and we may make out a little bit, but don't worry. That's as far as we're going. Am I going to be okay? No, I tell you, I'm not going to be okay, and I'll promise you he's not going to be okay. I know, Phil the gentle giant. You don't understand. I still got a SWAT cop in me, and it's a hair trigger. It's a hair trigger. I'm telling you, I'm going SWAT cop on that dude. Get off my porch. Kids call 911 because there's about to be a bloodbath right here. And he's already brought the flowers to put over his grave. You understand that's how Jesus feels about you? We treat sin like it's no big deal. It's a big deal to him because you're his betrothed bride. He he wants chastity. He wants spiritual fidelity, loyalty. And every single time we choose sin, we're saying, listen, I love my junk over I love Jesus. I love my sin more than I love him. And that is called spiritual infidelity. Listen, intimacy with God requires purity of heart. Do you want to be near to the bridegroom? Do you want to have a close relationship with Jesus? Intimacy in marriage demands purity. That's why Jesus would say in Matthew 5, 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. You want to see God? I want to see God. It takes purity, a pure heart, loyalty. And that's why James would write, you adulterers and adulteresses, do you understand what sin is? It is spiritual infidelity. But tragically, the bride of Christ has lost her chastity. The church is in the world to change the world, but so much of the time the world has changed us. We live in a world of complete depravity. It's increasing daily. The lines of right and wrong, good and evil, are being erased daily and moved by society. Here's what happens. Society takes two steps this way, we take one step behind them. Society takes two steps this way, we take one step behind them. The church is always one step behind. They keep moving the lines, we keep moving with them. I want you to understand, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If it was a sin back then, it is still sin today. 
If it was wrong then, it is still wrong today. If God said it then, he still means it today. The world keeps going this way and we keep walking with them. Here's the reality. We're not to live like the world, we're to live like him. We have a different worldview. We're to have a different set of moral values. And yes, we ought to be seen increasingly in this world of depravity as little anomalies, really. Man, they're just so out of step. They just don't understand the world today. No, I understand the world today, but I am out of step with the world today. And that's what we're called to be. First Peter chapter two. But you're a royal generation, a holy priesthood, his own special people, that you might shine forth the praises of him who's called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We're to shine forth the light in the world of darkness, not just to just our eyes in the darkness, to see in the world in a dingy gray. Now I'm convinced this is the problem. Instead of us changing them, the world has changed us individually and corporately as the church in this society. George Barna, by far, I'm convinced, the premier religious researcher of the day, a social scientist that specifically surveys and researches Christian trends and religious trends in America, the state of the church in America. He did a very scientific survey of 131 different behaviors, actions, and attitudes of both Christians and non-Christians, 131 specific actions and behaviors, lifestyle choices of Christians and non-Christians. He recorded his founding in a book entitled The Second Coming of the Church, and here's what he said. In aspects of lifestyle where Christians can have the greatest impact on non-Christians, there are no visible differences between the two. And we wonder why we're not impacting society like we're supposed to. Because our lives cancel out what we say with our lips. And Christianity is declining, quite frankly, and the church is retreating because of the way we live. It's not what we say, but rather what they see. What he's saying here basically is there's just as many divorces in the church as outside the church, just as much spiritual infidelity, marital infidelity, sexual immorality, promiscuity in the church as outside the church, just as much addiction in the church as outside the church. Basically what he's saying is our lives are just as messed up as them. Why would they want the Jesus we say that we have if Jesus hasn't changed our lives? We have nothing to offer them. And that's why society becomes more secular. Now I know what I'm talking about personally, guys. I've lived this before, I have. It was that same summer with my friend, Rob Lehmer. Uh, we'd gotten a job together painting houses. That's what we were gonna do that summer, painting houses. Turned out to be not houses, turned out to be house. <laughs> but it got me out of having to stock shelves from midnight to eight every night at Price Chopper. Yeah, I, I, in these days, I, I had this really serious allergy. I really did, serious allergy. I was seriously allergic to anything that looked like work. <laughs> I'm thankful that's changed in the last 30 years, too. Okay, so we're painting this house one day. Hey, guys, I'm not living for Jesus at all. I know the truth, but I'm not living for the truth. I know the gospel, but I'm not living out the gospel. 
I'm far from God myself, but, but I love my friend Rob, and I, I want him to go to heaven. I don't want him to die and go to hell. So we're painting this house one day, and I'm sharing the gospel with him. I'm sharing about how Jesus died for his sin and rose again, how he can be forgiven. And, and I'll never forget Rob's words as he looked at me that summer. He said these words, and I quote, but Phil, how is your life any different than mine? And he wasn't being a smart aleck. He, 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 wasn't, he, he was asking an honest question, but how is your life any different than mine? Dagger to the heart. And I remember exactly what I said. Well, Rob, I'm sorry. I guess I'm just not a very good example. You see, what I had just said with my lips had been canceled out by the way I had lived. My life was no different than him. I'm telling him about a Jesus that can change his life, and he's looking at my life and saying, but Jesus hadn't changed yours. And here's the reality. A life changed by Jesus will always change other lives by Jesus. Change lives changes lives. If God has changed your life, I promise, lives near you are going to be changed. The question is, has Jesus changed your life? Would you let him? Because I promise he can. He changed mine. Now, the good news to this story is Rob and I went separate ways, and it was really years before we would talk again. We're post-college, and we reconnect, and we spend an evening together hanging out. You know what he says? He says, Phil, I'll never forget it. He said, Phil, you've changed. Something has changed about you. I hadn't told him anything yet. You've changed. I said, well, what do you mean? What's changed? He says, well, for one thing, you don't cuss like you used to. Told you, I still struggle with that one. I do. But something had changed. I said, well, Rob, you've changed too. It turns out he did come to Christ. He's put his faith in Jesus. And you know why that matters so deeply? Because shortly after I became a pastor and left the police department, his was one of the first funerals I ever did. He died at 33 years of age of an overdose. Pharmaceutical painkiller, the opioid crisis had already begun. Heaven and hell was on the line. Eternity was at stake. Do you see why this matters so much? That we live it, we don't just say it. Listen, adulterers and adulteress, he says, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever, therefore, is a friend of the world is the enemy of God. What then is spiritual infidelity? It is, it is when we love the things of the world more than we love the things of God. That's what it is. It's when we have more than one lover, instead of giving our heart solely to the true lover of our soul, we give our heart over and over again to sin. That is spiritual adultery, spiritual infidelity. That is why John would write in 1 John 2, 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but of the world. You say, Phil, I don't think I can love God that way. I can't either. You know why? Because love is not merely any emotion. I cannot always feel for God what I ought to feel. I can't feel about Jesus what I ought to feel. But you understand that the New Testament word for love is usually agape. And agape is not about an emotion. It's about motion. 
You see, Jesus is not commanding that you have this warm, fuzzy feeling about him all the time, because I don't always have a warm, fuzzy feeling for Jesus all the time. Agape is not about a feeling. Agape is about allegiance and loyalty. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. You see how Jesus spells love is obedience. And that's why he would say in Matthew 22, of all the commandments of God says to do, there's one commandment, just focus on this one. He says, the first and great commandment is this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Because if you love him, you will not choose to love sin instead. You see, if you love God, you won't sin against God. It's not talking about having an emotion, a warm, fuzzy, goosebump feeling on the back of your neck for Jesus. It's simply talking about in the heat of temptation, who will you choose? A false lover known as sin or the true lover of your soul, which is him. You see, love is about allegiance. It's about loyalty. It's not just about duty. It's about desire. It's not about keeping a list. And that's what I thought for years, that being a Christian was about keeping a list of things to do and a list of things not to do. No, here's the reality. Your relationship with Jesus is not about lists. It's about love. And when you have love for God, nobody's going to have to give you a list of things to do. When you have love for Jesus, nobody's going to have to give you a list of things not to do. It will come naturally to you because you want to please him. You want to serve him out of love for him, not out of a list to somehow appease him. James 1:27, pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Now listen, we do the first part of this verse better than any church probably in history. Compassion ministry. We have compassion. This is a church age that lives on mission, but Jesus is also asking for consecration. It's not enough to have compassion apart from consecration. Keep yourself unspotted from the world. He's coming for a pure, spotless bride. This is how Jesus sees you, a beautiful, pure, spotless bride. You see, though your sins can be were as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they were red like crimson, they shall be as wool. A pure, white, clean bride. But every single time we choose to sin, she's no longer spotless. And we don't have to do like the, the, the big sins. No, we are really good at rationalizing things. Well, I don't take the Lord's name in vain. I just will let a little profanity fly on occasion. Well, Phil, you don't understand. I'm not looking at hardcore pornography. I, I will allow a little bit of flash of nudity in those R-rated movies to come before my eyes. Well, Phil, I'm still mostly white. I've got a few spots in my life. Well, Phil, you don't understand that, you know, the, 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 the Bible doesn't say it's a sin to have a drink. And you know, the Bible doesn't say it's a sin to have a drink. The problem is because the Bible says it's not a sin to have a drink, I don't mind going out for drinks. You know, the Bible condemns getting drunk, but, you know, I don't mind getting buzzed. Just getting a little tipsy. Jesus, you're okay with that, aren't you, really? 
Well, Pastor Phil, I know what the Bible says about having sex with people you're not married to. I, I know. Hebrews 13, 4, the marriage bit is undefiled. But the sexually immoral, God will judge. But, but God can't really mean that for me because, you know, I was married for years and I was used to doing what married people do. So now that I'm single again, I didn't want to be, but now that I'm single again, he can't really expect me to be celibate. Seriously, I mean, come on. He can't really mean that for me because, you know, I'm a grown-up and I'm used to doing what grown-up people do. So, you know, he doesn't really mind if I sleep around a little because I can't help myself. I'm only human. We rationalize it. We make excuses for it. And the very bride for which Christ died, he took our sin, our stain, our blame. We live as though we are completely undoing what Jesus tried to do at the cross. I want you to see when Christ died, what Christ desires is a pure spotless bride. He, he wants a chaste bride, a pure spotless bride. Ephesians 5, 27, he laid down his life that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Do you understand that he made us holy and without blemish? And the, every single day we have this choice to either live out practically what God has already said about us positionally, we're to live in a state of spiritual infidelity. And here's how a lot of people respond. I get this little Tide pen, and I'm, I, I, I'm somehow gonna clean myself up if I work hard enough. I really mean it this time. I'm just gonna try to cover this up and, and clean this up and I'm trying to tell you that's like trying to use a tight pen to underdo the stains the spots it'll never happen Titus 3 5 though your sins be as scarlet they shall be white as snow Isaiah said not by works of righteousness we have done but by his mercy he has saved us Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace are you saved through faith that not of yourself, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Here's what happened on the cross of Calvary, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus took off the rags of sin and the stain and all the shame and the spots and the blame and he took off all of that and he put it on himself and then he took off this royal robes of white and clean and righteousness and sinlessness and what it says is he put on those robes of righteousness and sinlessness he traded places with us he took our rags and he gave us his riches so that one day there's going to be a marriage in heaven and you get to the end of the book and it says in Revelation 19 8 and to her that you and me it was granted to be arrayed in fine white linen clean and bright for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints listen we have no righteousness we have only the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You say, Phil, what do I do? Because I know I'm not righteous. I'm not either. I'm no better than you. I'm no different than you. My heart daily wants to run to that which is evil. 
but this is what I've learned to do. I don't wait for Sunday to come back around to hit repeat. You do it daily. And I will promise you, purity is found through repentance and humility. See, everything is about grace. You can't clean up your life. I can't either. But Jesus can do it for you. Jesus has done it already. And this is why he ends this lesson in verse six, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Everything is an act of God's grace appropriated through faith. When you humble yourself before God and say, Jesus, I need you, I'm desperate for you. I repent of my sin again. I will promise you, Jesus, will begin the cleanup when you end the cover-up. Would you bow with me? Jesus, I pray for every person here, and I pray, God, in heaven, that you would give us a spirit of repentance, a spirit of humility, in place of that spirit of arrogance. It says, I'm okay the way I am. I can do what I want to do. I can have Jesus in my junk, too. God, I pray a spirit of repentance in this place. You're coming for a pure, spotless bride, a chaste, virgin bride, and we know that you're coming soon. And I pray as the betrothed bride of Christ, we would make ourselves ready through repentance and through humility. The Apostle Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 11, before we take of the Lord's table, we should have a time of self-examination, personal confession. So in the quietness of this moment, would you do that? Just you and Jesus alone have a time of personal confession, confession of sin. Jesus, we thank you that we have that promise. 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sin, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sin. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I pray, God, that we could be everything on earth that you've said about us in heaven. Sweet friends, listen carefully. In Christ, God already sees you as holy. In Christ, he already sees you as blameless. In Christ, he already sees you as sinless. What is the goal of every single day? It's to live practically what God says about us already from eternity. A bride that is adorned fine white linen, spotless before the throne. The Apostle Paul would write in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that if Jesus was celebrating the Passover on the night before his betrayed, he would take the cup, he would take the bread, and on this night it would have whole new meaning, it would forever be changed. The bread, a picture of his body, it was about to be broken. The cup, a picture of his blood. 
that was about to be shed. As these men and women pass out the cup and the bread, be sure you take both of them at the same time as it goes by. picture of sin. Jesus, you see, lived an unleavened life. He never, ever sinned. That's why he could pay the penalty for our sin. He was more than humanity. He was also fully deity. That's why his death could pay for sin's penalty. He broke that bread 
He said, this is my body which is broken for you. We don't do this to receive him. We receive him by faith in him. He said this do in remembrance of him. Jesus, we thank you that you gave your body to be broken and bruised. You were flogged by our freedom. Your body was pierced to ease our pain and by your stripes, we are healed. And then he took the cup, the fruit of the vine, and scripture is always a picture of blood. Bible would tell us that there is no remission of sin apart from the shedding of blood. He said, this do, as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, this is the new cup, the new testament in my blood. And he offered that cup as a Jewish bridegroom. By drinking of this cup, you're saying, I do. I accept as the bride of Christ. He gave the ketubah. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he may die, yet shall he live. And Jesus, we praise you. We look forward to the day that we see you. Help us now to live by your grace every day in a place of integrity, choosing again and again the lover of our soul over the false lovers of this world. In Jesus' name, amen. What a powerful service today. Praise God for all that he's doing in our lives. And maybe you're here and, and, and you need to respond to that. Maybe you don't have a relationship with Christ. I want you to know that today is the day. It's not too late, but I want to encourage you not to delay. There'll be pastors and counselors down here to receive you when you come down. If you want to know more about what it looks like to have a relationship with Jesus, we would encourage you to come. Before you leave, come as everybody else leaves. We'd love to talk to you. We'd love to spend more time with you. And those that are online, would you please email us or call the church office? We'd love to have a conversation with you. God bless you. Hope you have a wonderful day.